Housebroken Clothing and ClassicSciFi.com have joined forces to present the ultimate in classic science fiction-inspired apparel. All shirts are hand-printed here in the USA. Everyone loves the luxurious feel of these shirts. The prints are lightweight with soft inks, making them the perfect combination of style and comfort. Each shirt is unique and meticulously cared for during production. They are then inspected, approved, and signed by the artist himself. All this, plus free shipping. They've got Frankenstein shirts, Night of the Living Dead shirts, UFO shirts, all sorts of shirts. They're great shirts. Check out the shirts today at ClassicSciFi.com. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hey. And via Skype, we have Harry Bruis. Hi there. And he's coming to us all the way from... Britain, the United Kingdom. Well, you're in Wales now, right? Well, that's part of the United Kingdom. Well, um, all right. This isn't a geography lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm from Britain, well, England, but uh, I'm at university right now in Wales. You write for the site, you write for Smug Film, you're a huge fan of film. So what can you tell us about like how you came to be interested in film and how you stay connected to film? Like, Is, is internet a huge part of it? Do you have a film community out there? That's uh, a really good question. Yeah, yeah, what's the thing? Well, growing up, I didn't watch that many films. Um, I watched a couple. My parents were always interested in them. I always sort of went to see it a lot with my mom when I was a kid. But growing up, I lived in basically a pretty small town, quite far away from any civilization, and where I'm at university now, it's also kind of a small town. So the way I stay connected is, as you say, through the internet mostly. I watched a lot of movies in the last couple of years with people on Skype, just watching them in sync and just like talking over them, that sort of thing. I've never really had, there was never anything like a local theater where I used to live. It was, you know, they were like miles and miles and miles away. So I just ended up doing that, that sort of thing instead, or DVDs and so on, or Netflix. But where I'm at right now, just down the road from me, like, a minute's walk, there's a family-owned theater called the Commodore Cinema that's really nice. And they always get movies in that are, like, a month old. I think The Winter Soldier's about to come out there, that sort of thing. But uh, it's a nice atmosphere, and they've got, like, an intermission where food comes out. It's kind of cool. And over at the university itself, there's, like, an arts center with paintings and stuff. But there's a theater there as well that plays movies from all over the place. The last thing I saw there was um, Chocolat. Oh, so they in, play older movies. Yeah, in Cameroon. And I also saw The Man Who Fell to Earth there. Like, they've just got all kinds of stuff on there. But uh, mostly my connection to cinema is through the internet and through just watching it with people on Skype. Like, it's, that's just how I, how I do it. That's my experience. Is there any film community out there, the people you make films with? Yeah, there is. There's quite a couple of people who sort of work in theater who also enjoy filmmaking type stuff. There's a couple of groups at Aberystwyth who make films occasionally. And there is a very small Welsh filmmaking community. There's a guy called Gideon Coppel who makes documentaries here. He actually taught at seminars I was at uh, this year, which is kind of nice. He made uh, The last thing he made that's kind of big is called Sleep Furiously. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's No, I haven't heard of it. What, what's um, that one about? It's Well, it's a lot of um, sort of verite type footage, but it's generally about growing up in, in a rural community and being accepted into it. Because his family escaped the Holocaust, effectively, and, you know, to Wales, which is a very strange transition, but they were all accepted into it anyway, and Wales is interesting because it's simultaneously the most British place, where everyone is predominantly white and speaks with the same accent, but also the most accepting. It's, it's, it's just interesting. Right now, the political climate in Britain is shifting quite strangely, 
and Wales is the only place that appears grounded at all. Yeah, but that, that that's going to be on the scope of the question. But the really big cinema, film, TV thing experience I have is um, thanks to the internet, a lot of things get made that couldn't have been made 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I enjoy absorbing those things. For example, on YouTube, there are like hundreds of amateur found footage horror films out there that you can just watch anytime. And there's something beautiful about that. Um, there's a, a really cool movie on YouTube everyone should look up called Abandoned Grain Elevator, which is a, ostensibly a found footage horror film and it has the traditional ooh, spooky ending. But the first hour of it is just this footage of just some kids traveling through abandoned stuff, just, just this urban exploration footage. And there's something beautiful about it. Yeah, that um, sounds good. I'll have to check that out. One of the comments on it, the top comment right now says, fast forward to the last 12 minutes, that's where it actually starts. But, <laughs> the, f- but the first 45 minutes are why you should watch it, because right, it's just yeah. this interesting area and location. And if you're, you know, if you're on the Smug Film website at this point, you probably are willing to watch stuff that's just interesting visually. I think so. Yeah, if, they're, if they're listening to this, then they want to check that yeah. stuff out. That's a big thing with some horror movies. There are, just, there are these sections of, of a lot of the great ones that, you just you want to experience this um, world because they're all so low budget and they can't hide anything. Mm. They just show you. They just show you what they have. Like um, Carnival of Souls is immediately what I thought of when you mentioned this Grain Elevator movie, where they just found an abandoned um, old spa on a uh, on a dead lake and just went and filmed it. That sounds awesome. Wow! I actually went out and bought a an old DV tape camcorder to eventually film something we found footage on. I've never actually used it yet. But what camera? JVC GRD720. It's like just a really old tape thing. Right. That's kind of the cool thing about found footage is that, you know, you don't see it a lot with like the bigger budget ones, but it is kind of an excuse to play with obsolete cameras if you let it be, you know? Yeah, it, absolutely. I think I've spoken about it before, but Mike Figgis, the director who did uh, Leaving Las Vegas, a bunch of other stuff, he, he wrote this great book called Digital Filmmaking. And one of the things he talks about in that is that whatever camera you're using, whether it's good, bad, whatever, you can find out what light it likes, what color it likes, what kind of rules you need to get into to get something good out of it. And a lot of people don't spend enough time doing that. They just try and use it for what they've arbitrarily decided they want out of the camera that that camera might not necessarily be able to give. And if you're making a found footage thing, that's a that's such a wonderful freedom to explore that sort of thing. Like the movies that he was making around like the late 90s, he did a lot of uh, digital experimentation. He did this movie like Hotel and a couple others where like he was he was essentially just playing around and seeing what sort of limits he could find with that. And he was doing like dramas essentially. And I think if the found footage thing had kind of hit like at a different point, he probably would have gone down that route with it and done more stuff geared towards that where, you know, the camera is a character in, in a sense. And it, it's just a shame when you see those found footage movies that are so like, they're, they're just so polished and like the camera they're using, it's like, no, nobody would be using that camera in that instance <laughs> and stuff like that. It's just a shame, you know? Yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting found footage type stuff going on in the Dawn of the Dead remake and 28 Days Later where they occasionally well in in dawn of the dead they occasionally use shots from tv cameras or something to sort of show different mediums right and sort of explore how different things look in different ways in fact there's a very very short found footage movie at the very end of it and of course 28 days later is all shot on really low-end early digital cameras so it, it has a very interesting look to it which i think matches the theme of the film which is about 
the world ending so there would be no more films. So the message itself would change with the medium and so on. It has that like making do quality, you know. It does, yeah. That was a chance yeah. to pitch your Top Gear with cameras idea. My what now? Top Gear oh, with yeah. cameras. <laughs> are you are you a fan of the show Top Gear? Uh no, but I've heard of it and I, I see why it's cool. I Come on, you're it. you're over there. Um I don't watch it because I don't in Britain you either love Jeremy Clarkson or you hate him. <laughs> Um, I can see I, that, yeah. I'm kind of weirded out by the whole thing, so I choose not to watch it. Well, what John D'Amico brought up is that I would love to do a Top Gear-esque show, but for cameras. Because yeah. like, their slant is they're always trying to find these cars that are great, but are underappreciated and stuff like that. Like That's yeah. that's my favorite stuff that they do on that show. I think I, I just love that approach, what, whatever it is about. you know, I'd watch that show if it was about you know spoons like i wouldn't give a shit <laughs> i just love the the approach of you know reevaluating and and we do that at smug film to a certain extent trying to find films that deserve a second look so to speak but i would love to do a top gear type thing but for cameras where like people take these cameras you know everybody's chasing 4k and what's the next new camera and grabbing whatever is new and all these cameras just fly by the wayside. Like there was this piece up on, I think it was EOS HD, which can be a very infuriating site. What they wrote about was some guy made like a short on a Canon T2i and he used like a, a nice lens on it. And they were like, oh my God, this is so good. Who knew that somebody could use a T2i and get something that's good? It's like, fuck you, dude. Two years ago, you would have been like, the T2i is amazing. You know, we're so lucky to have this. And then like right now, they're so fucking jaded that they're like, who knew that the T2i could do this? It's like, Mm. I knew. I made two films on the thing. I love that camera. It's a very (laughs) underrated camera. John, there's that camera that you love that you shot your first film on. Yeah, the... uh XL2, I shot my first feature film on. It's the same camera 28 Days Later was shot on, actually. Really? It was, um, yeah, it's this big, bulky, standard def shoulder mount. And it it just sort of veers hot. Like, the images always look sort of hot and flat, which is a look I really like. And it's the look sort of of um, 28 Days Later, that, like, almost muggy, overcast day look that whole movie has. Yeah. That's just sort of what that camera does best. That was the look I wanted for for a lot of my stuff. So my first feature film, I shot with that. And um, if nothing else, I miss the ergonomics of that camera so much. The physical form of that camera was perfection. Was it heavy? It was, yeah, it was big and it was bulky, but it wasn't particularly wide. It was sort of like narrow. You would get the, you could get these shots where um, I would use my shoulder sort of as a pivot and just use my shoulder as almost its own um, mount for panning shots and get these great, like, really intense um, handheld panning shots that didn't that don't shake the way DSLR or smaller cameras shake. Mm-hmm. It was just so big you couldn't you couldn't get anything like that. And it had a handle on the top so that I could get a lot of um, really low handheld footage. Right, too. like the Evil Dead kind of. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Yeah. yeah, I was doing a lot of just, and it was so so sturdy. I shot um, one night. I shot an hour and a half in a thunderstorm, pouring rain. And um, it, it didn't miss a frame. I fell down a staircase with that camera in my hand. And it, there's a big scar on the side of the body now. <laughs> and it didn't, it didn't miss a frame. Wow. Just kept running, never broke. Was, that was a great camera. XL2 was just a... Did, uh, did it have interchangeable lenses? Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Because something I've noticed um, being at you know, um, a university for three years is that people generally aren't challenged to do anything interesting with the cameras because 
the stuff they use now on my course is um, the sort of big, I'm not even sure what they're called, basically pro camcorders effectively, sort of Panasonic things that have okay image quality, like they're, you know, the 1080p or 4K or what have you, but they're not, you can't change the lens out or do anything interesting like that. They're effectively just big, really expensive versions of the cheap camcorders I used when I was in high school. Oh, that's crazy. Um, and buying just like a Nikon D5100 and just being able to put any lens on it and do whatever with it is a lot much more interesting. Um, that's what I shoot with now. Really? The D5100? Yeah. High five. Yeah, that's what I'm using now for a movie I'm trying to shoot. It's great. It's another one of those sort of abandoned cameras, but I love yeah. it because there's so many lenses for it. You can yeah, get so much stuff. Yeah, like I think the camera itself has a couple of... The Canon version of it, which is effectively the T2i, is way like better, but the lenses for it you know nikon make the best lenses it also has a better um screen than the the t2i which if you Mm. don't need it whatever but me i I shoot a lot of stuff without a crew so the screen that you can detach and swivel and make face the front of the camera can be like a big big help yeah that's the um i I help a lot of i have some friends who film a lot of stuff with a canon i'm the cameraman for their stuff and it's weird where i can sort of there are advantages and disadvantages to both and I'm sure there's like a middle ground somewhere, but I don't know if if there is, you know, like a camera that fits that that sort of hole. Yeah, no, they I, they just have different functions, and the middle ground, I guess, is finding the one that speaks to you. The XL2, man, I think about that thing all the time. That camera just spoke to me, you know? Mm. Like, the way what? I liked to shoot was exactly the way it liked to shoot. I think my, my only huge problem with DSLR shooting is uh, they don't have particularly good autofocus. You have to be manually... yeah planning every shot, focusing it well. And that's a problem for me because I film a lot of very off-the-cuff stuff. Um, there's a video on a YouTube channel of mine where I will just go into my friend's room in the middle of the night and start brushing his teeth. Um, <laughs> and it's horribly out of focus because I had to manually focus while I was doing it. Their manual focuses on a lot of those lenses aren't great either, I don't think. There's, yeah. They're not very tactile on a lot of they're the not, newer lenses. Yeah. I have like one lens with really good focus, but apart from that, I would, I'm going to stick to a camcorder I've had for years for the focus just so I don't have to bother with it. The XL2 stock lens was, it was one of those lenses that was immediately shunned because it wasn't a prime. It was a Uh, telephoto, but that lens was great. It was um, 20X zoom and it was (laughs) like not 20X digital zoom. It was 20X physical optical zoom. Wow. That's good. Yeah. yeah, And it had these huge chunky um, focus and zoom rings. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was just, there was no slipping with them. The, The rings were like, probably twice the size of the rings on the lenses I use now for the DSLR. They were just these giant, very tactile, chunky buttons that you could find without having to look for them. I think kids shooting now are going to discover film through iPhones, which have their own set of rules and their own sort of freedom. Right. I mean, the freedom of an iPhone for shooting is really spectacular. You can drop everything at any time and have your camera on you, which is something we never had. And I'll bet kids now in 20 years are going to remember the, the wobble of, a, of iPhone footage the way we remember the fuzz of um, shooting onto VHS. Mm. <laughs> and also, like, the sort of rejection of vertical aspect ratios that was so instant that people are like, oh, it looks like shit. Like, turn your phone sideways, dick. It's like, no, try and find something that looks good like that. I remember, like, a friend posted, like, a picture of herself that was, like, from a still from like a vertically shot video like on Facebook. And it was one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen in my life. I was like, why isn't there a movie that's in 916? I wish <laughs> I wish YouTube would have a vertical ratio option. Exactly, yeah. I then think nobody would complain so about it. Yeah. It would be so yeah. great if some of them you could just see tall. 
Yeah, the real, I think the reason why is because when a video goes up on a site like that, it automatically has that black bar around it because it doesn't know how to display it. Exactly. So it, it broadcasts that, you know, there's something missing here when if it didn't have those bars, if, if it just had a player that was 916, then everyone would be like, oh my God, we can do videos any size now. Exactly. And uh, there's nothing wrong with any aspect ratio whatsoever. You know, whether it's like 3000 to one or one to one or anything, you can use it in an interesting way. You know, there's, there's to, nothing inherently wrong with any aspect ratio. Being able to do what you can with, with the space that you have is always really the most interesting part of working in a digital medium. For example, I have a screen that's just big enough that if I rotate it on its side, I can display an entire page of a Word document 100%, you know, the print size. Right. And that's really useful for me because I can just see the page. But a lot of people just don't want to rotate their screen because it's meant to be rectangular, apparently. Can I pitch an idea right now? First annual smug film vertical film competition. There we oh go. God. I love it. I love it. I mean, we had, we had talked about that initially like ages ago and we sat on it and we shouldn't have sat on it. That's, that's something we got to do. Yeah. I mean, it, it just we'd have to We'd people. have to get yeah. someone to write a player that's vertical. Think about something like Frankenstein, though. Imagine a vertical version of Frankenstein. Because there's so much walking up and down stairs yeah. in that. And like that's such a part of the experience of that story is that concept of like rising and falling. And like that notion is so integral to it. Do a 916 version of Frankenstein. See what it feels like. Outdoor stuff, too. I mean, like to get really the size and scope of like trees yeah. and stuff like that, like walking through a forest. Like when, whenever somebody shoots in the forest, you never really get that like height of the trees that you get when you're actually in a forest and perhaps nine sixteen, you know, you'd really get that and get what you're missing in that regard. Oh my God. We should pitch this. We should make a theater that's vertical. Here's the thing. We don't even have to pitch it. We could just do it because we have the internet. Oh, we do. (laughs) No, we have to build it. We have to build a theater with a vertical screen. That's the only way. Well, really we can just turn TVs sideways. Yeah, oh, get yeah. an art gallery and flip everything on its side. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's going to stop us. Yeah. It's art. Sideways <laughs> art. To bring it back to your experience in England, have you been to London much? Um, I have, actually. Yeah, I have some friends who live there. What, what's your experience like with uh, theaters, if you've been to any? Well, in London specifically, um, I've only ever been to one theater, and it was to see Jeff, who lives at home, which I'd heard was really bad. Uh, from the internet, but was surprisingly good. And I think part of the reason why it was good was because I saw it in a very small theater with about two rows of seats. So it was just this really intimate thing that you just went to see with a few friends and that added to the experience. And it was this really cramped room almost, like a dive bar cinema almost, but that affects the viewing experience. Sure, Um, yeah. I think that, that was just really cool. Where you see something is an important part of what you think about it. For example, uh, Melancholia, which... I think is absolute garbage, I saw on the internet with some friends when um, everyone I know who likes it saw it on their own in a darkened room or in a cinema. Right. I loved very, Melancholia. Very quietly, yeah. I absolutely feel nothing watching it. It's like my eyes slide off the screen. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm with you there. But that's, that's like because I watched it with friends and we were laughing about it and we had a sense of humor and we were talking over it when that film, in order to be appreciated, probably demands taking the time to watch it on your own. Yeah, it's I, a very different thing. I do feel like I missed out on something with that because... You know, I saw it on my TV. I was like, how did anybody have any reaction to this? This is it, this is just it's, awful. But it's I, weird because uh, I saw Antichrist, the previous film in that mm-hmm. so-called trilogy, with the uh, with the same people, and we loved it. 
Oh, we especially love the punchline at the end where it ends with um, dedicated to Andrei Tarkovsky. That was hilarious. I guess just like a punchline to the whole film. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it was very, very influenced by Tarkovsky. I, I never really saw their influence. Really? But, They're like direct shots, I think, in Antichrist. Uh, I'm a big Tarkovsky fan, but uh, it, just, it was just really strange to me. That almost reminds me of uh, the end of Scarface, where it has that mm. sudden, like, dedicated to, like, Ben Brecht and uh, Howard Hawks and Ben Brecht. Yeah. It's just so yeah. weird to see Howard Hawks' name right after that big scene. <laughs> yeah. I love movies that have some kind of punchline in terms of how they're produced. My personal favorite right now is in the first Captain America movie, which is very anti-propaganda. Like, the whole movie is about how Captain America doesn't like being a symbol. He wants to be the guy who goes in and helps people, and actually he cares. You know, he doesn't like being the guy whose job is to sell war bonds. He wants to fight the war. And then the movie ends, like, fade to black, smash cut to a trailer for the Avengers. Like, that's brilliant. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that is actually pretty great. Yeah. I never saw that one, but that's, that's pretty funny. It's a very strange and almost anti-Marvel message. Yeah. That was just a conflicted movie, though. I feel like that movie really was tearing at itself. Well, I think that's because it's an anti-Avengers Avengers movie. Like, over here, I'm not sure if it was called this where you are, but in Britain it was called Captain America the First Avenger. I think of that now as a threat. Like, that shouldn't be a good thing, almost. In what way? Um, well, take for example, I mean, I assume by now people have seen it because the sequel's out. Um, at I, the, the, reason, Sack- the reason I ask in what way is I barely remember the Avengers because I didn't even finish it, and I didn't exactly. see the second Captain America or the second Thor. So exactly. the, the whole concept of what an Avenger is is pretty fuzzy to me. Uh, the Avenger is a big superhero team whose job is to attack space aliens for no reason for 40 minutes at the end. And the first Avenger is meant to be, you know, he's the beginning of this horrible mess of uninteresting, poorly shot action. That sort of threat. I don't think much of the Avengers. Um, but I couldn't get through the first 10 minutes. Of that. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I felt like I started watching a TV series like halfway into it. or so. I was like, who's that guy? What's that guy doing? Why is that girl doing that? Like, I couldn't follow anything that I was going that on. I think that actually is the brilliance of it, that it's, I didn't, I don't like it, but I think the smartest thing about it is that they came up with the idea and committed to the idea of just doing a television series on film with a series <laughs> finale. Yeah, it did have that finale vibe. The villain's motivation in, like, the enemy army's motivation in the Avengers appears to be to attack a bunch of empty cars, because they don't seem to do anything else. They're I have just no idea. hooligans. Like, the whole, the themes of almost every Marvel movie is, you should sacrifice yourself for the greater good because you'll come back. Like, in the, that's, that's the message of the first Avenger. He crashes himself to avoid damaging New York, and then he gets unfrozen. And then in Avengers, same thing happens again, where Iron Man sacrifices himself by flying a nuke into a doom portal or some other nonsense, and then he survives. Like, yeah, he does the same no thing. He does the same thing in the first Iron Man movie. He flies up to where um, he would die, and then he doesn't die. Yeah, it, it, I like to compare the Avengers with Independence Day, where the character who everyone thinks is inferior and is crazy sacrifices himself for the greater good because, regardless of everything else, he knows what the right thing to do is, and he dies, but people remember him anyway. In Avengers, Iron Man 4, The Avengers, um, he survives his own sacrifice and will continue to fight an eternal war against random bad people. And there's just something insidious about that. It's always fascinating to me to see how movies treat death. Because yes. in, in so many ways, almost every movie is about death, even when they don't want to be. Even movies that you wouldn't, that it feels like it would never come up. There's always somebody dies or something just there's death everywhere in the landscape of films and some of them a lot of the great action movies i feel like are serious about that yeah 
And a lot of the weaker action movies, I feel like, are afraid to really confront what a death means. Which sometimes, what, sometimes it's fine. I mean, Commando never gives a shit about when anybody dies. <laughs> and it's sort of like a beautiful thing in Commando because it's, it's just like, it's a cartoon. It owns it. Yeah, it, it <laughs> cops to it. Whereas Lethal Weapon, on the other hand, is just terrified of dying. Die Hard's scared of dying. The New Dread movie has an interesting portrayal of death where it's sort of in itself beautiful in its own way. Because there's this drug that slows down time, if you've seen it. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. I mean, that's movie. a wonderful film. Yeah, it turns everything into this... It slows things down so far that nothing makes sense anymore. Everything becomes this abstract image. Life itself becomes just this experience of stuff happening at you. And that'll be an, that, that is hopefully what death is actually like, where meaning breaks down and you're no longer dying but living differently or something. My favorite thing about Dread was um, that drug never... They never told you any side effects. And <laughs> it really... the the concept became they were fighting this drug because it made the world too beautiful. Mm. Possibly, yeah. It's, Which, it's really interesting. Like That film is a satire, obviously, because the point of Judge Dredd in the comics is he's exactly what the world needs, but he's not even good enough at it. Like All he wants to be is a man on the street who murders the bad people with his gun. When a Dredd who really believed in his ideas would fight the corruption in his own system and make it better, but instead he just has to occasionally kill bad judges as well. He's like a failure of his own system, even though he's the best. Yeah, that was a wonderful movie. That was, it was really good, yeah. I, I rarely hope this, but I hope they get a chance to do that sequel. I think it's, it's such um, fertile ground. I, I don't think there's a script yet, but I think it's touch and go. There might not be, but there might be. We'll see. You brought um, up a good point about uh, how a movie handles death. I just did an interview, and I don't know if it's going to be up on the site when this episode airs or not, but I interviewed... Uh, Gregory Wilson, who directed the horror movie The Girl Next Door. And that's a great example of a horror movie that is so fearful of death and puts so much weight on death because a lot of the film is very torturous. You know, it's about essentially a character getting tortured. And, um, you know, I, I broached the subject with him about how what sets it apart from a lot of horror movies is that aspect where you really feel the love between the characters that love each other. And you really feel the fear of death when there's a threat that somebody you love could die. And so many horror movies are about people that love each other, girlfriends, you know, boyfriends, like all this thing of like all these people that are supposedly caring about each other so much and friends even, you know, family members. But how many of them do you really feel that fear of death that you would have about somebody who you really cared about that deeply? There's so many when people just die and it's like, all right, and now we're running off to this place. Like, they don't even take the time to have those moments. So I think the best horror movies are sometimes the ones that put so much huge weight onto it. And I think Girl Next Door is probably the best one I've seen for that specific criteria. That's interesting. I'll have to watch that now. I think you'll really like it. The problem horror movies, I feel like, are the ones that try to play it both ways. There's this... um, There's this horror movie from like 2010, 2009 called Frozen, and it's about people who get trapped on a ski lift. And it was, there was like that mini spate after uh, open water of movies about people just sort of trapped somewhere. And you're essentially, you're waiting for them to die. And the the best known one is uh, 127 Hours. Even when I don't like them, I usually don't have a very strong opinion about the fucking ethics of them, because who really gives a shit? But Frozen, for some reason, something about it just cued me into the fact that it was an hour and a half of just like leering at these people's misery 
And there was never a window of hope. There was never a glimmer of anything. And it wasn't in the way that, say, like Sallow would give you that and give you it for a political or ethical purpose. In this case, it was really like you were the camera would come in close on these shots of them, like peeling their frostbitten hands off the iron bars of the ski lift. And you can see like the flesh ripping off their hands. And it's just this really like grotesque stuff that feels grotesque for the sake of letting you leer, which is this very fine, very personal line with horror movies. I think the ones that really will let you in on that emotion. I feel like it's such a high wire act. And that one just something there, there was some aspect of it that it felt pointlessly cruel to just humanity in general and Mm. petty about it. That's, that's one thing. Um, I have a friend who I've, I've known on my course for a few years and his pet project is this film that he's apparently tried pitching to people several times and never got any positive feedback on, which sounds like just an hour and a half of relentless torture. It feels like, you know, there's nothing to really gain from that. Like there's always got, there's got to be some other factor to it that makes that interesting in itself. What's his motivation with it? Um, I think because he's, I think he's a crazy person. Um, <laughs> I think his, that's, I've also, he actually made a few comics that I actually bought off him and read. And they're the same thing where it's just, it's obsessed with the act in itself. He's the sort of person who will draw pictures of dinosaurs tearing stuff up because that's just cool. When the, one of the reasons why dinosaurs are so famous, um, Jurassic Park is because it had a message to it almost about life finding a way and so on. Maybe he should just be a special effects guy. You know? I think he might be. I'd love to do special effects as well, though. I'm trying to find work in a post house right now. But I feel Maybe. like, you know, people that, for better or for worse, lack that sort of approach, you know, the the obsession with the minutia. I always feel like there's a job for everybody in film. Anybody who loves film, there's there's somewhere where they will thrive in the process. Yeah. And That's one reason why I think Zach, Zack Snyder is so good at what he does, where... In 300 or Watchmen, the reason things slow down isn't just because it's cool, per se, but because it's... 300, for example, is about propaganda in the end. It's about, you know, changing how something sounds or looks to make it seem more in favor of an idea or of a person. So when something slows down and becomes an image of someone doing something and it loses all of its context, that's sort of... That's the power of of comics on film, where you see just the image without any surrounding things that get in the way. And Man of Steel, which is the movie I'm going to bring up later in that thing does it the opposite spoiler alert way. yeah <laughs> i forgot we he did man of steel we can we can go into that now um we're yeah sure yeah we'll we'll take a quick break and then we're going to come back with a extra special super duper segment that we haven't done before that's gonna be really awesome and now a movie joke by comedian anthony kapfer whenever i'm watching the passion of the christ by myself right in the beginning of the movie I whisper, what would you do for a Klondike bar? And then I pretend it's the longest Klondike bar commercial ever. This has been a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. Visit him at anthonykapfer.com. K-A-P-F-E-R. So this segment is a uh, brand new segment we have not done before. This will probably be a regular thing. It's called Old New Borrowed Blue. And so each time we do this, uh, we'll pick one old movie that we recommend, a new movie we recommend, some streaming borrowed you know, movie online that you can check out 
and uh, just some movie that has to do with the color blue or a feeling of blueness, some sadness, or however we interpret blue will be how we pick our blue movie, so to speak. Old, I'll start that off. Um, There's this old W.C. Fields movie called It's a Gift. That's my favorite W.C. Fields and is a perfect introduction to him. Everybody always talks about the bank dick and how great that is, and that's a great one too. There's something about It's a Gift. It's a very short film. It's like 70 minutes. It's hysterical. It's it's solid. It's Every scene is funny right from the beginning to the end. The best part of W.C. Fields, aside from how funny he is, is his editing and his pacing. And it's such a simple story and every scene just links up to the next in a very linear way and it's just hysterical and he doesn't he never tries to tell too much story he's just so unique and he goes through these stages where people remember wc fields and appreciate him and then forget about him pretty quickly after it's a gift i've watched like once a year for the last couple years it's it's a wonderful film great introduction to him Uh, i can't recommend it enough have you guys seen any wc field stuff yeah, I, I love W.C. Fields. I uh, My favorite of his is the uh, one set in the Yukon, uh, Fatal Glass of Beer, which is essential W.C. Fields to me because it's usually on a lot of those greatest comedies of all time lists, and it's also on all of the worst comedy of all times lists. Mm. And I've met, <laughs> I've met people who've said it was the funniest movie they've ever seen in their life, and I've met a lot of people who've said it was just flat out stone cold, the worst fucking movie they had ever seen it's like 20 essence of comedy right there yeah yeah and it's the essence of wc fields it's like 20 minutes long and it's just it's nothing it's just this fucking miserable old man talking to the camera essentially for like 20 minutes just mumbling about stuff but there's something so i I love that he he was essentially if mr magoo was a um looney tunes character it would have been wc fields right that combination of just like lazy mumbling and also just complete disregard for the rules of decorum and filmmaking have you seen any of his stuff harry i have not in fact the only thing i know about wc fields is i remember the old quote the only cure for insomnia is to get a lot of sleep <laughs> um your description of that movie though john sounds a lot like it sounds like crap's last tape the samuel beckett play which is it's about a man who's wasted his whole life and makes recordings every year it's genuinely quite depressing but depending on how the actor plays it uh, it can be also very very funny I would love to know what uh, Beckett thought of W.C. Fields, because I feel like there's a weird overlap in their relation to the audience. Quite possibly, yeah. This sort of almost aggressive communication with the audience by breaking the rules of when and how you're supposed to communicate with them. I think that's what a lot of, that's what comedy is really about, the you know, making people more aware of the rules that they're living by. Yeah, and and always making people remember the rules of comedy and the lack of rules of comedy and the self-imposed rules of comedy and, you know, adhering to and breaking and et cetera. Um, so for our new film that we are picking, uh, John D'Amico will take over. Yeah, I just caught uh, Under the Skin the other day, the new uh, Scarlett Johansson movie. She's, it's based on a book, and apparently she's like an alien bounty hunter capturing men to suck their insides out. The movie never really goes into any of that. Apparently the book does. And I read the uh, synopsis of the book and I'm glad I saw the movie instead because what the movie does is kind of like what Kubrick did with The Shining. It sort of locks down what information you need to stay inside the lead character's perspective. You know, it never tells you anything that um, 
wouldn't just sort of be revealed in her day to day. It's uh, it's really interesting. It's and you can even see in the poster. It's intentionally a throwback to kind of the '60s, '70s psychedelic sci-fi era, which is something that I really appreciate in moderation. But when it's done well, I really respond to it. Like the whole first twenty minutes of the film, pretty much is just shots from Phase Four, which was Saul Bass's movie about uh, ants, super intelligent ants taking over the planet, <laughs> which had the the same sort of vibe of taking this absurd premise and treating it with um gravity the movie just had a lot of like visual gravity and it was very quiet and it really just sort of like it lingers i really liked it a lot it was it's um it's a throwback to what i would like to see more of in science fiction i feel like science fiction is in a place now where it's really caught up because essentially the technology of actual life has caught up with a lot of the ideas that buoyed most of science fiction so i feel like sci-fi is in this place now where it's trying to find a new mode and just trying to find sort of like a new angle to show futurism under the skin kind of disregarded this like wikipedia approach to science fiction that i think a lot of like pacific rim to me felt like it was it was just a bunch of statistics about the um big robots they made and under pacific rim is wikipedia.org slash Giant robot. Yeah, exactly. And Under the Skin's almost like a, a rebuttal to that kind of science fiction. It's very much, it's a, it's a tone poem of a film driven by the, by the emotions and it doesn't, it doesn't even really tell you what they are. You got to figure them out as you go. And you saw it in the theater, right? Yeah. How did it play in a the theater? Great. Big crowd, which I wasn't expecting. Uh-huh. But uh, Scarlett Johansson's naked in it, so I'm pretty sure that's why there was a crowd. Right. <laughs> and, what uh, theater did you see it on? I saw it at uh, Union Square. Uh-huh. At the AMC down there. That can be good, yeah, that one. Yeah, it's a good one. It, it was. It's a very loud movie in parts, which uh-huh. is nice. And she's spectacular. I love the fact that she's doing what McConaughey and Channing Tatum did. Right. Where she just decided she's going to start accepting a different breed of role. She's got this sort of um, the vibe that I hate to make this comparison, but it really is an apt one. The vibe Marilyn Monroe had where she would accept all these sort of like lowball parts and um she was so beautiful that you just kind of assume she wasn't a good actress but what she's doing in those less impressive parts just to keep eyes on her the whole time is really kind of impressive yeah marilyn was very good i mean some like it hot she's just hysterical so now i feel like (laughs) scarlet's taking that she's starting to explore her like bus stop and like her misfit phase of her career where she starts to move into more substantial roles and i think she's doing great at it she would even between just this don john and her she's found these parts that are all really different from each other and all really challenging mm. and i think she's killed it in all of them and she was great in the, the woody allen stuff i always thought she was wonderful yeah it's you, nice you like like scoop i love scoop man yeah i'll defend that one till the day i die which is <laughs> ironic because it's about death haha <laughs> oh good um, one yeah. because all movies are well yeah Especially but Scoop. <laughs> it's funny that you bring up Scarlett Johansson, uh, though, because there's a movie coming out in August this year called Lucy, which is about a drug that makes you superhuman or something, which is like not even science fiction. It's just pure fantasy It's from the looks of the trailer and from how it sounds, which is a very odd thing for her to be in, especially in the scope of what you just said her career was taking. That looked kind of cool, though. I like the trailer for that. Yeah. It, looks, um, uh, it looked a little like Haywire. Yeah, it looks like it might... It looks like it'll go over the top enough that it'll be interesting when Transcendence, which just came out, 
has been getting panned because it doesn't live up to its premise where this one might. That's the Johnny Depp one? Yeah, the Johnny Depp one. Yeah, that was, the, uh, yeah, that got tore up pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm going to go see it soon just to, um, when it eventually comes out of the theater down the road. Just yeah, I'd to be see curious like. to hear your thoughts because I've, you know, I've just been hearing critics' thoughts, you know. My, my whole shtick is that I enjoy finding enjoyment in things that people don't like. So I kind of want to like it, which means, you know, I'll be going in with kind of more of an open mind. Well, the premise is great. I love I love a lot of the Kurzweil as futurist stuff. I don't think enough has been done in that area yet. I think that's still a very exciting area. Like Transcendent Man, one of the best documentaries I've seen in a long time, and it's really like it's almost hearing brilliant people pitch essentially what would be the best sci-fi movie if somebody would sit down and like commit to it. Like it almost feels like you could watch Transcendent Man and just take notes and be like, oh my God, what if this, this, that, and the other? Because, you know, it's just hearing futurists talk about their pretty spot on, you know, sometimes a little fanciful ideas of the future. But it's just, it's it's just ripe with wonderful ideas. And so it, it had a lot going for this uh, Transcendence. But uh, I don't know, we'll see. I'd, I'd love to hear your take, so definitely cool. get back to us on that. Our next, uh, our next pick is... Uh, borrowed so uh john d'amico what's our what's our borrowed film what's our streaming something or other that we need to check out yeah if y'all got netflix there's a movie on netflix called night catches us that's very much worth watching it's from 2010 it's directed by this woman tanya hamilton who as far as i can tell it's her only uh it's her only feature she's apparently she's been trying to make this movie since like the 90s and it's a story of a uh it's Philly 1976, and it's the story of a Black Panther who snitches on another Black Panther and gets sent to jail, and he's released from jail a few years later and tries to reintegrate with this community where he snitched on one of the other Panthers in it. It's terrific. It's uh, Anthony Mackie is the lead, and Kerry Washington's in it, and uh, Bunk from The Wire nice. plays one of the cops in it. It's just this... The, the script gets a little... It's a little fond of telling you what the characters are feeling every now and again, which considering it's her first movie isn't really the worst thing in the world. But it's this terrific story that, um, I mean, it's directed by a black woman, which alone is always a fucking miracle. And it's this really like emotionally honest story about this section of American culture that there's not a lot of movies about, about sort of the dissolution of the Black Panthers, the end of the um, civil rights push, that sort of decay of that whole movement which is a really interesting fertile ground for a movie that there's not a lot of. It feels really uh, like what we were talking about a few episodes ago about the idea of these movies that just sort of capture the emotional life of a time and place. This one feels really hooked into this sort of um, edge of the rust belt, not quite a crumbling city, but not a thriving city, Watergate era, end of hope era movie it's uh it's it's really worth checking out and it's like an hour and a half which is something whenever a movie's an hour and a half you feel like you have to tell everybody this one's only an hour and a half yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's 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 a hell of a movie it's uh it's one i don't understand why it's slipped through the radar a little bit considering now it's four years old right but it's 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 a rewarding watch did you ever see uh mario van people's movie panther no that's that's surprisingly good, and it's almost like it's a uh, it feels like a tall tale version of the Panthers, which really works well because it almost feels like 
it gives the vibe of you're around in this time and you're just hearing these hearsay stories about the Black Panthers. So it's like it just rides that wave of everything sounds a little too difficult to believe stuff where you roll your eyes. You're like, oh, it wasn't like that. But it just works so well because it really feels like sort of like a street hero. Like you can't even believe what's going on. Like these are just lies people are telling you in the streets of things they heard that the Panthers did and stuff. It's a wonderful movie for that reason. And it's been hard to find (laughs) on uh, DVD for a while. It was out of print for a while. I don't know what the status is right now, but it's definitely worth checking out. Maybe even in conjunction with uh, the film you just mentioned. Did you ever see Huey P. Newton's story? The Spike Lee one? I saw parts of it when you mentioned to me in the, the article. You wrote, He wrote a piece of uh, YouTube movies, uh, movies available on YouTube that everybody should check out. And I saw part of it. It was really captivating. I got to finish that one. Yeah, that's a great one. I just find the whole, the story of the Panthers, I think, is just one of the most interesting stories in American history. Absolutely. I, as an outsider, I don't really know very much about the the Panthers, but I know of them. And uh, I think I'm going to have to look this movie up when we finish with this. They're a football Actually. team. <laughs> Carolina. Carolina yeah. Panthers. Night Catches Us actually will give you a pretty good primer on a lot of different perspectives on what they were like and why they couldn't last as an organization. It's really, it's it's a good movie to just sort of start with to kind of understand that era of American culture. So our last, uh, our last film is a choice by Harry, and that's our blue of the old, new, borrowed blue and uh, what film have you got for us, Harry? I have chosen the Zach Snyder film, Man of Steel. Um, wait, it's Zach spelled with a K, isn't it? So I it thought is. it was Zach with an H. Oh, well, like mm-hmm. Zach. I can't even make that joke. The Zach <laughs> Snyder film, Man of Steel, which is blue, obviously, because of most of his outfit is blue, especially now they've done away with the underwear. It's very um, observant. Yes. I noticed that <laughs> I no longer have an excuse to check out his package. It's uh, honestly has been really divisive, and I'm not entirely sure why. It has its problems. It's far too long or not long enough. It, it sort of rests somewhere in the middle, but it's really interesting. And Zack Snyder is generally not liked for some reason by a lot of people. And I actually watched it again last night in preparation for this uh, with some friends and they also hated it. And I just couldn't understand why. What works about it for you? Well, one of the things that I think makes it interesting is if you, I assuming you guys have seen it, the final fight. I, I haven't seen it, but spoil um, it away. I don't There's I don't There's a, there's a fight at the end between Superman and Zod who at that point is evil Superman, basically. And the fight is this massive, almost horrifying, in scale, destruction of property all over Metropolis and horrible things are happening everywhere. And a lot of people complain that that scene wasn't cool because there was a lot of damage and a lot of horrible things happening. It, you know, it wasn't enjoyable to watch. But for me, that was the point of it, where if you saw two gods fighting, horrible things would happen and the scale, and it would be just this confusingly huge thing happening to you. And I sure. thought it was meant to be uncomfortable to watch and i felt genuine discomfort when i first watched it in the theater with the screen that was huge and just noise it was sort of the culmination of the weird shaky cam sound too high violence we've seen in movies lately but sort of done intentionally almost and i I really enjoyed that and Mm. it's weird seeing people say well the violence wasn't cathartic or fun and therefore it was bad when i think the whole point of superman is that he doesn't like having to hurt people and being forced to is a terrifying thing. Right. In other words, it's aligned with his morality yes, in that respect. I think, I think genuine, a lot of films get given that treatment as well. Uh, I, I think the Star Wars prequels have uh, basically a criticism of everything about the Jedi and Star Wars fans in general. And people 
almost see that as a bad thing. Like it's a plot hole that the Jedi make mistakes. And it's the same thing in this where it's bad that you didn't enjoy watching a city get destroyed by a horrible fight, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and it's weird going back and watching the rest of his movies. Well, I, I finished up. I didn't see um, the Dawn of the Dead remake. So I went back and saw that lately. Um, it's amazing how many similarities there are where all of his films are about consumerism and the culture around, around it. In fact, one of the stores that they, or areas that they trash in Dawn of the Dead is literally called Metropolis, which is a cool link, I think. But, and of course, Metropolis itself is a reference to the film Metropolis, which is all about, you know, a giant towering futuristic city and the horrible class struggle going on underneath, which is what the whole film's about. I think it's, it does a really interesting stuff with, like, people complain as well about the uh, prologue, which is this 20 minute long scene on Krypton. That's uh, my big beef with that movie, among yeah. other things. I like that scene a lot because you already know going into the movie that you know there's going to be a lowest lane, you know what a Superman is, you know what Krypton is, and it accepts that those things are happening and just takes it in a direction that you wouldn't have seen before, where you spend the first 20 minutes establishing the themes that will be in the rest of the film. That's kind of what the original Superman does, though. From the limited number of comic books I've read, I've seen a lot of the Superman stories where they'll just spend far too long on Krypton in all of them. Krypton mm. seems like it's a bit of a quicksand part for all those all those Superman filmmakers. The director's cut of the Richard Donner one, there's just too much goddamn Krypton. And the mm. second movie, there's just too much goddamn Krypton. Yeah, so one of the big problems I have with it is that it's edited very strangely, where what they could have done was intercut the prologue with the rest of the movie. Yeah. Or done something else differently with the flashbacks, which are intercut. I uh, feel I that way could... about a lot of superhero movies, that yeah, they they're all tediously together linear when they don't need to be yes a superhero that i'm a big fan of that is never probably never going to be in a film is uh the sentry who's essentially superman but slightly more interestingly put together and just a more interesting character i think and uh, i don't know why i bring that up it's just uh <laughs> i'd love to see a movie version of the sentry because his comic series was short and had a plot with the beginning a middle and an end where the trouble with superman in general is that he doesn't he doesn't have anything to do. He's just the guy who keeps everything going as it is. He's the man that keeps America running, basically. He's like a mechanic, and that's just not a very interesting character. He's um, like the Atlas holding up the globe, yeah. so to speak. I disagree, yeah. and I think it's a, a major point of criticism I have with nearly every take of the Superman character, except for the 1950s Superman TV show, which is still my favorite of all of them. George, <laughs> that's a George Reed Yeah, one. I think that yeah. show was brilliant, the first two seasons of it. Because the the interesting thing about Superman and the very relevant thing about Superman as a character is that he's a character who's essentially guaranteed to win any fight he enters. But the question is, when and where is it appropriate for him to use violence, which is the experience of America in the 20th and 21st century, mm. this mm. sort of outsized monolith that has no serious physical competition, but has thousands of small ethical questions about what, when, and where yeah. are the problems and what do you do to solve them. And that's kind of what I like about Man of Steel, where instead of saying Superman is here to keep America running, it says, no, Krypton is the future of Earth if things continue as they are. That's interesting. In fact, I didn't that's why that. I think, because remember, Zod's goal is to literally turn Earth into Krypton. He, he, you know, which is to me just accelerating what we're already seeing on Earth now, where 
Krypton explodes because it exhausts its natural resources, which is kind of what we're already doing. If I recall in the Donna movies, it's an asteroid. Um, so the change to it being... I think it was like, they were vague on it, but I remember it being something internal. It was like the something was exploding inside the planet. Mm. But I don't think it was what it is in this one, where it was yeah. depletion of resources. In this one, it's they mined the core so badly that the planet imploded. And I think Superman is sort of trying to make Earth different from that so that we don't hit that point. So he's sort of inherently not American anymore, which is interesting because that's a reflection of a lot of the Superman character stuff we see in the more interesting comics. Like uh, The Dark Knight Returns, Superman's in that, and he represents almost America, and he answers directly to the president and can be ordered to kill Batman if the president wants it. Which is, you know, in that case, Superman represents America's will. Like, is that the right thing to to do? Is that, you know, is that what, what we want him to be? Or that sort of thing. It's reflective of the stuff we see in modern democracy now, where early on the point of democracy was you voted for the person who you agreed with. But now where people are sort of being expected to change their stance to reflect the people who they want to vote for them. Like, yeah, the, the dialect is changing. And I think it's interesting that David Goya decided to actually make the story reflect this stuff instead of just having him be like Richard Donner's version, which is very different because it's a different time. Makes right. me uh, makes me interested to actually see it now. I wasn't excited for it before, but now I'm like, eh, I want to see that take now. So yeah. you, you've got somebody to watch it, at least. you got one person. I would also definitely recommend, in terms of Superman-related material, um, Superman vs. the Elite, which is an animated film, an adaption of a Superman comic that I don't think was very good. It was very morally weird, but it doesn't. it's interesting anyway. And also there were two movies based on The Dark Knight Returns that recently came out, and they're both really good as well. Animated? animated. Yeah, they're animated as well. They're mostly about Batman, but Superman's part of it is really interesting thematically for both characters. Man of Steel is fascinating because I think it's the best and worst aspects of both Zack Snyder and Christopher Nolan as filmmakers. Yeah, I agree. It has Christopher Nolan's like impeccable eye for casting. I mean, that's like mm-hmm. one of the best cast movies you can imagine. Yeah, but Henry also, Cavill, it's amazing. Yeah, he is. And Costner, I thought, was the best part of the movie. Because he was, he was essentially, he was an avatar of Field of Dreams, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's something that um, Snyder has a really good eye for, where yeah. he, he will willingly reference other movies just gladly. He won't try and disguise it at yeah. all. In fact, there's that amazing shot in the movie where um, when Zod is explaining what he's going to do to Earth, and the shot is a direct reference to Terminator 2, where he's standing upon a, a field of skulls and there's a swing set in the background and it's all designed to look like yeah. a shot from Terminator 2. And I really like that thematic relevance because Skynet in Terminator is global capitalism, basically. And I remember a lot of the original War of the Worlds in just the, the sort of look and blocking of what was going on in Zod's ship. Yeah. But it has, it has Nolan's eye for casting, but it also has Nolan's problem with pacing. Yes, Where absolutely. Everything is two and a half hours long. Yeah, and it's not, it doesn't flow. It's a series of almost standalone sections of a film, even to the point where the last fight isn't a fight. It's three fights in a row with yeah. these tiny little breaks in between. Yeah, it's just a I, weird editorial move. That's my big complaint about it, pacing-wise. It, it should have either been 90 minutes or three hours. Yeah. Like, they should have gone for broke either, either way and just made it, like, a greatest hits of the birth of Superman throughout all of, you know, everything that causes him to exist. Like, bits of Krypton, bits of flashback, bits of him fighting Zod. Or it should have been, like, an epic-length yeah. story. And um, it, has, it has Zack, Schneid- Zack Snyder's 
Just, I'm getting you to do it now. <laughs> yeah, you are. You are. It has, it has Snyder's just incredible eye. Those shots are just, that movie's beautiful. But it also has, like, whenever it tries to do, like, cool character bad guys, they're just ungodly lame, which is a big problem Snyder had. Like, the the, the woman general on uh, Zod's team, I forget her name. Theora. Yeah, it's just the lamest character. Just, like, brutally, like, sucker punch, awkward... The, the the Watchmen trailer thing where it's just like people falling in slow motion and it's just like super goofy at moments where I don't think it's appropriate to be super goofy in that way. Yeah, but that's um what makes Man of Steel generally interesting where it's a Zack Snyder movie. So you expect that glorious slow motion beauty punchline, as it were, but that never happens in it. There's never really a moment of slow motion. It's all right. You're trapped in it. And I think that fits the theme of the of the character, of not being able to escape the gravity of the situation that you're in. Doesn't the Krypton woman bust out, like, weird kung fu moves at some point? I remember that. Yeah, she does. There's a bit where she, in, like, fast motion, beats up, like, ten soldiers. Her character's kind of interesting, though, where... Because, like, the whole character arc of um, the Kryptonian military people is... Because they're bred for, for battle, they might as well enjoy it. So they get really, sort of, sadistic. Yeah. Which is an interesting way of taking it, and that's kind of Zod's character arc, where he realizes that he isn't just doing his duty, he's enjoying it as well, and he decides to embrace that. And that's at that moment, he actually literally throws his armor off and starts to fly, and becomes, you know, this anti-Superman type character. Yeah. Which I think is cool. That's cool on paper, I don't think he's stuck to landing. I'm at the point with Zack Snyder where I would be interested to see him DP something that he didn't direct. I think that's the thing about Man of Steel is that it gives me ideas that I want to do in movies that it doesn't do well enough that anyone would notice if I ripped them off. Yeah. So it's a really good idea making film. Like I just watch Man of Steel with a notebook and I can just go, oh, wouldn't it be cool if <laughs> one of the best Superman films I've seen is um, Hancock. That is really interesting. Stuff you like that one? I liked it a lot. Yeah. You know, it wasn't very well received, I think, if I recall, but um, I, en- I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. People don't really like that one here. Yeah, that was but, um, like one of those movies where like it comes out and then it immediately feels like an airplane movie, like the kind <laughs> of movie you'd get stuck with on an airplane. It's a shame because the idea was really good. I don't think it did what it set out to do. And it was Peter Berg too. Yeah. So like, I mean, competent director, good idea. Just I don't know if it clicked. I can see I can see why people wouldn't like it, but I, I have a soft spot for it. But Zack Snyder's um, another film that was really poorly received by him was um, Sucker Punch. Which again, like the name is part of the joke of the film, which is it's it gives, I guess, what he thinks of as nerds exactly what they want, but in such a way as it makes everyone feel awkward about it. And I I enjoy that, even if the film isn't all that great. There's so something it's like wonderful his Freddy it. got fingered then. Absolutely. Interesting thing about it is that people talk, you know, the characters addressed as schoolgirls, and it's and people talk about how creepy that is, but it's actually shot really conservatively and almost respectfully, and that's interesting in itself. Where you have to almost imagine the objectification yourself, at which point, you know, who's really doing what. I think Sucker Punch is a more interesting film than people give it credit for. Same thing with stuff in Watchmen, where the Vietnam scenes in Watchmen are basically directly taken from Apocalypse Now, and they've got Ride of the Valkyries playing in there. His films are about films. They're never just a story. I, I quite like that. There's, there's, room in, there's room in movies for that kind of thing. Sure, yeah. I, uh, I really like The Watchmen. I really liked uh, 300. I thought those two, uh, especially 300 in theaters, like I, I've tried watching on TV uh, subsequently, <laughs> but there's something about it in the theater that just blew my mind. 
and that I haven't really been able to capture since. In... Well, because it makes sense. It's a movie about telling a story to yeah. an audience. Oh, I, yeah. yeah. Really in fact, it, it ends. Exactly. Yeah, it ends Good with them telling the story, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And that's why people have complained almost about how the uh, the outfits are inauthentic, but that's the beauty of the story where there's how uh, a Spartan warrior would actually look, and then there's how we imagine them. Right. And, it's uh, it's how you would tell the story. You know? Yeah. And so they were trying to make it cooler. The enemies become progressively more of literal monsters as it goes on. Exactly, and of- then and then there's the whole part where like the the bad guys are like sexually indecent and demonized as homosexual, even though Spartans have their own history of that. Like it, it just plays willy nilly with all you know with with the truth in order to make this intentional crazy propaganda story, and I really like that. Mm. Uh, did you guys see Immortals? No. Um, yes, I did. Immortals I is great. Loved Immortals. Which one's yeah. that one? That was Tarsum's version of 300. Mm. Tarsum Singh, yeah. It was, uh, it was um, Theseus, the story of Theseus. And it's yeah. just, it takes all the 300 imagery, but whereas 300 would show you these action scenes about to happen and then not follow through with them because it would do that sort of freeze everything into these um, like murals almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. Immortals is like if it just kept going after the freeze frames. And it's just this... Yeah, fascinatingly violent, super violent shit show. It's just like a shit show. Everything Tarsum Singh does is just amazing to look at. And it's like, the fights are like a painting. Yeah, especially that last shot is just Yeah, the last shot is really cool. And also the fight between the immortals um, is really cool. I'm going to have to watch that again now. (laughs) I I would argue, too, that it is probably the closest representation of the feeling of the Greek gods in the Greek myths, which no director ever wants to do because they're so weird and so abrasive. But in Immortals, they just, they say, fuck it and go for it. And the gods are just these like pieces of shit who come yeah. down and push people around and have these big fights in front of you. And they like just, they cheat their own system. Like yeah. they have these explicit rules, like don't talk to mortals, don't help them out at all or I'll kill you. That's what one <laughs> of the gods basically says, but he spends the whole time disguised as an old man telling the main guy what to do. Like, it's great just how much of an asshole the gods are. I gotta check that one out. You're making um, it sound pretty damn good. But yeah, 300 embraces the fact that it's propaganda with its constant slowing down, slow motion till it almost pauses to form a propaganda poster. Mm. Like, it's it's really cool. Alright, guys. I think that was a pretty <laughs> damn good episode. We, uh, I think we'll skip the mailbag this time, because we... Uh, I feel yeah. like we should always be doing mailbag. You want to do, do mail? One? All right, let's blow through yeah, it really quickly. Well, yeah. So <laughs> first one is Brad asks, what are the essential films that everybody should see and why? <laughs> oh, wow. That's a big fucking question. All right, let's do this like a fucking lightning round, okay? Everybody has 10 seconds to come up with some essential film, all right? Jaws. Yeah, I knew you were going to say fucking Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> let's just keep going. What do um, you got? What do you got? Uh... For mm, uh, spring, summer, fall, winter, and spring, because it tells you everything you need to know about Buddhism and anything. Uh, I don't know. Just watch a movie. Okay, you're good. Uh, you should watch Citizen Kane, followed immediately by F for Fake, because that teaches you everything you don't want to know about movies. Okay, done. All right, next question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eric asks best actor or filmmaker on social media. As well as the worst. I, I don't know any of the worst, so maybe we'll just do best. 
I love Chris Eigman and Whit Stillman on Twitter. I think they're both great. Chris Eigman's posted some really funny stuff lately. He was a, he's an actor that's in a lot of Whit Stillman movies and was in some no bomb back movies. He's a very funny actor that you probably, if you see him, then you're like, Oh, that guy. And, uh, he's, he's really funny on Twitter. How about you, John? Rick Baker's Twitter is the best I've ever seen. It's just a lot of pictures from his archive of all the makeup he did and everything. Gary Berghoff's is the worst. Gary Berghoff was Radar O'Reilly in MASH, and his Twitter is just brutal. It's just bitching about um, how how much more popular Alan Alda was than him, and it's him trying to lay all these fucking 70s actresses who also have Twitters. Is that one is that one real though? It's real. Because I remember there was something about how Patton Oswalt discovered it and I thought it was like a fake Patton Oswalt thing. <laughs> Maybe it is real though. Pretty sure it's real. Yeah. It's I was actually gonna mesmerizing. Say, my favorite is Patton Oswalt. I think he's got his Twitter is like just has interesting information on it. He says pretty funny things. Right now he's making fun of how people delete their tweets and then apologize for them. But my, my least favorite guy is Kevin Smith because his oh, tweets God. often go on for multiple <laughs> tweets. Like he's defeated, he's, he's turned Twitter into his personal diary and that is just, that defeats the purpose. He's one of those people that's very difficult to follow because yeah. your entire feed is just going to get clogged with him talking and talking and talking and yeah. retweeting he's, and retweeting. He's perfected his storytelling process, though, where he's gone from having to make actual movies to just sitting in front of a microphone for two hours, which I, is what he really wants to do, I think. Yeah, and I, li- I like a lot of his Q&A stuff. He's told some great stories, like the one about Prince and everything. Like uh, Some yeah. of his stories he's told are amazing. Yeah, a lot of them are better than his actual movies, and that's fine. I think he's he's perfected a new process, and it only work. It could it could only work for him. You know, there's no there's no one else who could manage that for a living. But I, hmm. uh, you know, good good on him. At least it stops him from making any more films. Well, it doesn't because <laughs> I think he has two. Yeah. He has two in the can, or he has yeah, one he coming could. out, and he's working on another one. The last uh, last question is from Daniel, and he said, "Can you sniff a fart while talking about Terrence Malick's tonal poetry?" I don't know what he's talking about here. I, I love Malick except for, uh, you know, the first and last chunk of Tree of Life, which I've said incessantly. And uh, The New World didn't do anything for me. But uh, other than that, I like him a lot. What, what's your favorite Malick, John? I think that dude's making fun of you, that question. Yeah, but I know. I, I know he's making I'm not, I'm not going to encourage him, though. I, I love Days of Heaven. I think Days of Heaven is just beautiful. Yeah. Tree of Life is really good, but it ends and then has another half hour. To the Wonder was disappointing but i'm open to liking it more again. i like that one a lot more than you did i was set up to hate that one because of tree of life and the fact that he was doing that one so quickly afterwards i was i felt like it was gonna be more of the same maybe that's the best thing for him though to just i think so fast i i i really responded to to the wonder way way more than tree of life which version of the new world did you see Oh, I don't know. That's a good point, there actually. Versions? Wow. There's a regular yeah. version in the director's cut, and the director's cut actually is a much better movie. It's shorter, right? Isn't it weird like that? I think they I brought it out, and then they cut like 10 minutes or something. It's, I don't know. It feels bigger. I don't know if it's... I saw Tree of Life with a friend on Skype, the way I watch all movies now, and it was a really good experience. And a lot of the shots in it are just beautiful, obviously. That goes without saying at this mm. point with Malik. We watched it around the same time that we watched a lot of the Gus Van Sant movies um, that were very slow and just purely visual, almost like Jerry, which I'd also recommend, and Elephant as well. And Last Days I didn't like at all, but it's very similar to, I think, uh, The Tree of Life. But what I've always... It's become sort of an in-joke on me and my friends is um, the phrase untitled Terrence Malick project because that was the <laughs> thing on IMDb yeah. that was coming out soon after Tree of Life. I think it became to the wonder. 
But I, I, one day I'd love to see a film called Untitled Terrence Malick Project. That would be a really good name for a movie. <laughs> yeah, his, happen, mo- his movies tend to remain as Untitled Terrence Malick Project for a very long time on IMDb. For, for a good 10 years before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Terrence Malick's good. I don't, I don't have any problem with him. Go to early Malick, everybody. Everybody starts with Thin Red Line and goes forward. Go back. Badlands, Go Days of Heaven. Badlands, Days of Heaven, Dion Brothers. Just terrific stuff. Days of Heaven is like required viewing at that point. That could have even been the essential one of my essential. Actually, tracks. yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I've talked about Jaws enough. I'll say Days of Heaven is my answer for essential viewing. Yeah, the one thing I'll say about Days of Heaven, and then we'll wrap this up, is the look of that film. If if you want to learn how to light a film, watch Days of Heaven, and you can learn how much you can get just from relying on natural light and available light. Nestor Mandros uh, was famous for everybody would be setting up lights at the beginning of the day all the teamsters hated him because he would just be telling everybody to take down the lights that they all set up and everything and everybody thought he was a fucking joke they didn't take him seriously until they saw the actual footage that he was getting from very minimal light on that film it's just a masterful movie it's also a lesson in how many rules you're allowed to break when you're editing your movie oh yeah break every rule and cut anything that needs to be cut that's the great thing about malik which can hurt him as far as uh, appreciation, like sometimes he goes on these editing, I, I guess, sort of roller coasters in his films where like I'm not on the roller coaster with him. But when you when you're in sync with him, it's unlike anything you've ever experienced watching a film. When you're yeah. really on that roller coaster with him, when he's at his best and he's taking you through in this very unconventional editing way, it's just gorgeous. So uh, that about wraps it up. Thank you, Harry, for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me on, Cody. Yeah, we didn't really have a topic. We kind of freeballed it, but I think we, uh, <laughs> I think we did pretty good. And John, thank you again. Any yeah. parting words? No, I got nothing. Have nothing. Week. How about any parting words, Harry? Um, it's pronounced Zach. I just checked. I checked earlier. <laughs> it turns out I've been saying it wrong the whole time. Good to know. I, I was sure it was spelled with an H, but now I feel like an idiot. There, those are my words. I'm sorry. All right, and uh, be sure to subscribe, rate, comment, so we can blow up the iTunes charts so people can discover us and find us and all that. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will see you next week. Thank you.